This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everybody again, it is Trags, and this week on CLNS's Red Sox Beat, I welcome back the man who covers the Red Sox better, I think, than anybody else, the one and only Ian Brown. You can follow him on Twitter at Ian M. Brown, with an E at the end, all one word. Ian, uh, welcome back, and uh, we have a lot to touch on this week. Yeah, good to talk to you again, Trags. I think last time we spoke, it was... Um right after the Red Sox beat the Rays in the division series and they were getting ready for the, uh, the ALCS. I really thought uh, up to one against the Astros, they were headed to the world series, but then that uh, Jose Altuve home run in the eighth inning of game four absolutely changed everything. And then uh, Laz Diaz in the ninth inning, if he does, that changed if he, everything too. Uh, it did change everything. If that oh. uh, Nathan Avaldi pitch on the outside corner, upper outside corner, I should say, yeah, is I called know. a strike, that inning ends 2 2. Who knows what yeah. happens in extra innings or if the Red Sox win it in the bottom of the ninth inning. But still, um, you know, those two moments in that game four really altered the series for good. Yeah, it's crazy, man. Just the way you see some of the, the way these series can change on a dime. And, um, you know, I saw it uh, in the Rays series for the Red Sox when the ball hit Renfro and then went into the bullpen for that quirky groundwork right. up. That probably saved that game and maybe the series uh, for the Red Sox. So uh, when thing, when quirky things happen like that, the momentum just cha- tends to change. So I just had a feeling after after that game four that uh, that was the way it was going to go. Um, going back to Houston for game six almost felt like a waste of time. It just felt uh, just – Well, just, uh, once you're done – once yeah. Jordan Alvarez uh, took over, it pretty much was a waste of time. Uh, he was yeah. just unbelievable and obviously turned out to be the American League Championship Series MVP. We're going to get back to talking Red Sox on the field, but I don't think there's any question in anyone's mind that the biggest story on every uh, Red Sox fan's mind uh, this week has been the passing of Jerry Remy on Sunday after his latest bout with uh, lung cancer. I thought you had some wonderful words of remembrance uh, in uh, in your Red Sox beat, your Red Sox beat on MLB.com. Um, you, sa- you said uh, you started watching the Red Sox in 1980 when you were eight years old. Remy was the leadoff hitter on that team, and I loved his style of play. His motor was always running, and he looked like Ricky Henderson by comparison on a team that had a roster loaded with slow-footed sluggers. I love that open yeah, I mean, of, of your notebook. It was really a station-to-station a, a station team with you know, Hall of Famers, you know, from Jim Rice to, to Carlton Fisk to Yaz, um, you know, to guys who could have been in the Hall of Fame like Dwight Evans. And uh, these guys that just could all bomb the baseball. Uh, but here you had Remy, and he was the one guy – uh, who could make things happen with his legs. And he was just such a gritty guy. I mean, five foot nine, 165 pounds. I mean, uh, didn't hit a home run like the last five years of his career. I mean, uh, players like that don't exist anymore. But no. in those days, you would love to have a guy like that. And he just fit um, so well. And he was also a big game player, never more apparent than the, uh, you know, the 78 playoff game. Yeah, where he I was, was really going to bring that up. Game to play uh, for the Red Sox that day. But yeah, so I just loved him as a player. 
and then um, you know to go on um, like he did to have the the, the career he did thirty four years continuously in the broadcast booth uh, for Nesson. Uh, you know it was it's amazing just how, how long uh, he did that for. Uh, it really is. And uh, going back to his uh, performance in that one game playoff, if Lou Pinella doesn't pick up the ball, his line drive out of the bright sunshine and stab it. Uh, he has the potential of having one of the biggest hits in Red Sox history. Yeah. I mean, at the very least that hit uh, ties the game and, puts, uh, you know, puts a runner on, on third with, with one out in a tie game with, uh, with Jim Rice and Yaz coming up. I mean, I think that, um, you know, Rice, who end, who did end up hitting a deep fly ball to right field, right uh, in front of the bullpen. I mean, that that wins the game if uh, you know Burleson is even on third. But you know, you figure, well, you figure Burleson would have scored, and then Remy would have been on third, on third, and scored easily on the yeah, uh, Rice so fly if ball. Rice hits that, if Rice hits that same ball, you figure they win the game. I mean, Goose, from what everyone says, was kind of running on fumes there. He coming in the seventh inning, and uh, you know, didn't have his best fastball. Matter of fact. I heard Jerry Remy on one of the last podcasts he recorded with uh, Chris Ma Mad Dog Russo. It was a podcast about the 78 Red Sox. And, uh, you know, Re Remy said in that, look, if I was pulling Goose, you know, I pulled Goose. So you, he definitely didn't have his fastball because I always hit him. I always hit him uh, to left field. So right. uh, that was just a sign. But, yeah, it was a great game. And, uh, you know, Jerry Remy, very passionate about uh, the fact that he played in that game. And he takes pride in it, even though they lost because it was just one of those games that neither team uh, deserved to lose. One of the, one of the best games in baseball history, frankly. And I think Jerry um, was proud that he, he, he was one of the, one of the starting uh, 18 players in that game. No question about it. And uh, we're going to move on to his broadcasting career now. And what I really enjoyed about your Red Sox beat in terms of the way you painted out his broadcasting career, three gentlemen had a huge, huge influence on him, at least his on-air partners, Ned Martin at the start, Sean McDonough in the early and late 90s, and then, of course, Don Orsillo. Spend a little time, uh, Ian, if you would, uh, touching on all three of those guys and how they were different, how they impacted Remy in different ways. Yeah, I mean, Ned was just the – my favorite announcer growing up. I mean, this guy, uh, people have no idea how, how unbelievable an announcer he was. He was just like – had such a way – he was like a literary uh, genius. He was just had such a way with words. And he had been doing the Red Sox for um, – you know, since he has his rookie year in 61, that was his rookie year too. And here comes Jerry Remy in 88 with no broadcasting training whatsoever. Uh, Martin had covered his whole career as a Red Sox player. Now he just kind of brings him along as an announcer. And it's just giving him little hints about how this is how we do it. This is, you know, you can say this, don't say this. I'm um, even teaching him like basic, some basic grammar stuff um, as a broadcaster. Because like I said, uh, Martin was a real uh, literary guy, real uh, well-read and uh, just had a professional compartment about him. Smooth. And, yeah, and I feel like Jerry really um, benefited from that tutelage. It was what he needed at the time. Um, Jerry was not confident when he started as an announcer. Um, he just had, didn't have any training, and he, he didn't really know what he was supposed to do. And the amazing thing about Jerry, uh, you know, Ned did what he could, but Jerry kind of taught himself and uh, got to where he got through work ethic and working with the producers and how can I get better rather than just saying, Oh, I stink at this and uh, kind of rolling over and, and, and going on to do something else. He said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to work at this the same way I worked as a player. So I thought that that team with Martin, that became a good pairing um, after a while, but like you alluded to when Sean McDonough came in, 
Uh, I think they started working together in 96. Um, so Remy would still do the games on Nesson. I think it was Bob Kurtz in those days uh, after yep. Martin left. So Remy would still do the games with Bob Kurtz on Nesson, but he would also do the um, the on-air, non-cable broadcast on whatever channel, 25 or 38 or whatever they were on, with McDonough. 68. McDonough just, yeah. So McDonough, what happened when I, when I read that was really interesting was uh, McDonough and Remy became friends before they started broadcasting together because they were both in the traveling party. They were both announcers with the team, uh, Sean on 38, Ned and, uh, and Jerry on, on Nesson. But they became buddies and they sort of uh, on the airplanes and on the buses and stuff. And, and McDonough said, you know, I want to bring that guy onto the air because that's a funny guy. That's a funny guy that I'm talking to here. So McDonough just really knew how to, to draw that out of him. I and mean, he just the funny things with, you remember Trags, Wally the Green Monster. He loved having his little Wally, his little miniature Wally next to him on the yes. little chair there, the Adirondack chair uh, in the booth. And just all these funny bits they did. And uh, it was a time when the Red Sox were called the Dirt Dogs. Um, so McDonough said, you know, you're the Rem Dog. Because McDonough said, you know, everybody was dog back then. That was the big thing. Right. And, Dog is where it kind of just took off um, for Jerry. Um, so he worked with McDonough from 96 through all the way through 04. But um, and then in 01, he started working with Orsillo also because Orsillo came into Nesson at that time. One of the not to I'm going to interject here. One yeah. of the first big games I remember Don Orsillo doing, if I'm remembering this correctly, Ian, it was Hideo Nomo's no hitter. In that was his first game. That yeah, was that was game. his first game. Yes. So and... That was his first game. So the poor guy, um, you know, Don, who's the greatest guy in the world, you know, a no hitter for Hideo Nomo. He still is uh, pissed himself at how bad his call was because he just kind of froze in the moment. I mean, for your first game to do a no hitter, I mean, that's just impossible to, to live up. To I, so I, and I'm getting, you know, I think you know where I'm going to go with this. Marty Brenneman's first game with the Reds, do you know what it was? 1974? No hitter, Seaver? No. It, Marty Brenneman's first game with the Reds was Hank Aaron tying uh, oh, Babe right. Ruth yeah, yeah. at Riverfront Stadium off Jack Bellingham in the yeah. top of the first inning. That was Marty Brenneman's introduction to Major League Baseball in Cincinnati. Wow. That's a crazy way to start. I'm sure, um, you know, Don can relate to that. And But Don, Don's a great guy. But he and Jerry, the thing was about Don and Jerry – is they genuinely became not just like broadcast partners, they became like best of friends. Like they, and Jerry's kind of a loner, mm -hmm. but with, with Don, it was different. And it was like, it was kind of like almost like a father, son, uh, uncle, nephew kind of dynamic. And they just, they just had such great chemistry and Don could draw out um, uh, Jerry's personality like Sean did. Um, the difference was that these two were legitimately like best friends and they didn't even feel like there was a camera in front of them because they were that comfortable together and they would just the cackle fest they would have and they would you know jerry would be dancing you know during on the air during a rain delay and falling out of his chair and uh, one time his tooth fell out in the middle of the broadcast so these these two guys are just we all remember the pizza throw right Tragic. yes we do uh, i met boston uh, marathon uh monday yeah 2007 uh labor yep. day or Patriots Day, sorry. Right. When one when a, a fan throws a slice of pizza uh, three or four rows in front and hits another uh, fan in the back, and these guys are breaking it down on the telestrator, and Remy saying, this guy's thrown out of the game because he ruined a good piece of pizza and all this stuff, and it was just uh, it was just great that they could laugh like that in a way that everybody could relate 
And so they did that. And not only that, but they knew when it was time to talk baseball. And this was true both with um, Sean and with Don is they knew when to talk baseball. Jerry really broke down baseball well. And I think because of some of the sticks, we remember him all for some of his funny sticks and his funny bits. The guy knew baseball so well. And he was constantly saying, you know, where somebody was positioned. And a lot of times he would sort of forecast something um, that was going to happen, you know, right before it happened. So he had a really great feel um, for, for the game, um, you know, on TV. And he really brought that to the viewers. Like, if you didn't know a ton about baseball, he really um, taught you a lot. And let's face it, there was a lot of Red Sox fans. And, you know, during that time, who we were sort of jumping on the bandwagon because the Red Sox were really becoming trendy in 2003, sure. 2004. And he taught a lot of these people baseball who didn't know baseball that well. And he, he was great because he just did it in such a down-to-earth, um, relatable way. That was the beauty of Jerry um, on the air um, and off the air tracks. He was just like such a big part of the fabric of being around Fenway, being in the media. You would see him in the, in the clubhouse every day. He was the first one there. He was the one media guy who was allowed in long before the clubhouse was open to the media because he was Jerry Remy. So he would be there at 1.30 studying game notes, um, talking to players. Uh, he was very close to every manager who came in, really, especially on Terry Francona and Jerry uh, had a really special thing. And it was the same way with, with most of these guys. Um, I think, you know, John Farrell, he got along fine with him. And Alex Cora was very tight with, with, uh, with Remy. Um, so he just, uh, you know, he earned everyone's trust, right? And he earned the players' trust, um, the players' To a man, they all respect him because they saw him and they're doing his work and doing his preparation. And what's the one thing that players um, criticize broadcasters about is when they feel that they're being criticized unfairly and maybe that guy hasn't done all his preparation. Well, Remy was in there every day um, right. as hard as he possibly could. Um, he wasn't really a guy to rip a player, but if he didn't have some constructive criticism, he would do it in a very um, constructive, not sort of mean a professional way. Like yeah. he obviously played the game. He played the game at the major league yeah. level. And, and if he were, if he were critical, he would offer suggestions on how he or how a player might play that situation differently. And the player would almost never argue with that because right. he knew they knew he knew what he was talking about. Right. And I love act two, Remy and act are two of my favorite, uh, people, broadcasters. I'm glad I'm by the way, I'm glad we got to hear Eck and Remy for a substantial amount of time yeah, together because really they, they were touched, gold. That was what I really touched on in the newsletter was that the latter part of Remy's career, the thing that came out of it was um, three-man booth with O'Brien, Remy, and Eckersley, where O'Brien knew that he was just kind of the setup guy. And if the game, you know, that 2020 season tracks, I can't explain what a boring season that was, but the highlight of that season was this booth because um, they were together at studio. They weren't at the ballpark. And they would just go on these riffs about their careers, the two of them um, talking about being at uh, Studio 42 or whatever the big... Uh, you know, Studio 54. Studio 54, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that's my, that is my era, as you know, Ian. Yeah, so. yeah, but they would, they would talk, you know, Remy <laughs> would talk about going in there with Eckersley like late, you know, at two in the morning after a game. And it's just like these stories they told were just um, absolutely hilarious. Some of them were funny. Some of them were really point. I remember one specific instance where um, Eckersley was talking about, you know, I had a great career, but the moments to me that, uh, you know, that really stuck out to me were the times that I didn't do as well. And those were the times that, that, that always stuck with me. And then Remy was like, exact same for me. Like I think about, you know, the times I failed, not the times I came through. And this was like a really sort of poignant thing from two guys who made all-star games. 
Um, two guys who have pretty successful careers. Just their their candor together, I thought, was pretty cool. Um, but kind of the overarching point I was making about between Remy and Eck is that we were talking about Remy's very kind of subtle, the way he criticized the player, because Remy knows, like, he didn't get to the major leagues because of his athletic ability. He got there largely because he was going to outwork anyone. And not that Eckersley didn't have a great work ethic also, but he was also a great talent. And so he's a little more blunt with his criticism on players because um, you know, as much as he had failures in his, his career, um, you know, the game did come easy to him at times. And so he just, uh, you know, for great players, sometimes Hall of Famers like Eckersley, they, they don't understand why everybody um, can't avoid uh, mislocating a pitch like right. they do. So that was the difference between the two of them. They're both great. They're both treasures. Fans love them both. It's funny, the fans love them equally almost when their styles are so different, but they work so well together. And I thought it was so cool that when Jerry came out, um, before the AL wildcard game against the Yankees, October 5th. Um, we hadn't seen him since he had left the booth um, two months earlier with the cancer. He came back to throw out the first pitch. He came walking through the um, center field wall uh, in a cart, and everybody was just, you know, everyone was just so excited to see him there because they hadn't seen him in a while. And then he threw out that pitch to Eck, and it was just a magical moment because these two guys had played in the 78 playoff or they were both on the 78 team had been on the team on that playoff game and this this was the Red Sox and the Yankees playing again in a one game playoff and it was also just Remy's comeback and getting off of kind of a comeback or if it was a good buy or what it was but I think you were just happy to see him again and Remy threw out the, the pitch to Eckersley and Eckersley was quoted the other day saying that um you know he texted Eck, he texted Eck that night and he said you know I was just honored to be there tonight and Remy's response was, his response was, I'm glad it was you. That was all the text said, I'm glad it was you. And Eckersley was just like blown away by how simple, but how like powerful that was. Right. And he was so happy that um, Eckersley, a teammate that he, I think Bob Stanley might be uh, Remy's best friend of all the players he played with, but um, Eckersley was right up there. And obviously they had the work relationship too. And he was just so glad that he was throwing it out to him. It was such a genuine relationship the two of them had you know jerry maybe deep in the back of his mind might have known that he was never going to be back to fenway again i think only he knew um exactly what he was fighting at that point but yeah just, just glad it was just glad it was you that was amazingly powerful thing that really jumped out at me when i uh when i read it the other day we'll wrap up uh talking about jerry remy here uh in with uh what you wrote and i'll just read it verbatim when i decided to tweet last winter that i have battled anxiety and depressions that times in my life. Remy sent you a heartfelt text telling you, Ian, that it hit home because he had battled the same things. He finished the text by saying, quote, appreciate your honesty and keep fighting much in the same way that Remy kind of bowled over Eck with words of simplicity. I assume that was the same for you. Yeah, I was amazed. I mean, I received like, um, it was just like this day in the winter it was a slow day. And I was just seeing this uh, with some, um, uh, mental health uh, awareness type of day and people were tweeting out and um, raising money every time somebody tweeted it was raising money um, for this cause so I just decided to tweet it out I hadn't told anybody that I had dealt with these issues before um, and I got a lot of so many nice tweets and texts that day but just uh, getting that one from Remy just kind of right. blew me away because Jerry wasn't like a warm and fuzzy um, kind of guy but we were like we had a pretty good relationship and just the way he sent that text and I didn't even he would see my tweet or whatever um and yeah it just blew out of all the texts i got that one that one probably 
um, blew me away the most. And then I just, I actually had actually kind of forgotten about that until he died. And then I went back and I wanted to look up some of her old text messages just for some remembrances. And I, and I saw that one and I just, went, oh yeah, he sent me that. And it was just amazing, uh, amazing what he said. Um, and to get something like that from him, uh, it meant uh, it meant so much to me. And I feel, I feel fortunate to have, you know, there were some guys who obviously a lot closer to Jerry than I was, but I just feel so fortunate at Trags to have the relationship I did with them, just where um, he did trust me. I did trust him. We were, you know, we had a nice, as I call it in the thing, a nice sort of easy relationship. There was nothing um, forced about it. And I just felt kind of um, honored because Remy's not a kind of guy who brings, he doesn't bring everybody in. He doesn't trust everybody. He's not like, he, he's, a, he's as much as he's an extrovert on the air, he's an introvert off the air. Very much so. <laughs> so yeah, I felt fortunate that he, that I was kind of a guy that he, uh, you know, he would make fun of me on TV sometimes when I would, I would drop a foul ball in the uh, press box or something and they would show it and then they go, oh, come on Ian, that's a terrible play or something like that. So I just felt lucky that I had a, a relationship with him because he was someone, like I said, that I looked up to since I was uh, eight years old. I got to tell you, Ian, um, I don't have a lot of stories about Jerry Remy. A, I respected the hell out of him because I knew when he opened his mouth on the air, and this is the highest compliment I can give any broadcaster, whether it's a play-by-play -play or an analyst. When they opened their mouth, they had something to say that would add value to my enjoyment of the broadcast. And Jerry Remy was always that as a professional. Yeah. Anytime he opened his mouth uh, and talked baseball, I was all ears because I always thought that he had insight to the game and could do it in a concise, uh, informative way that very few others uh, in the history of the game could do. And that's one thing that I will always remember about Jerry Remy. The other thing I'll always remember is whenever he called me by name, because it meant he knew who you were. And yeah. I'm sure you can obviously even more so much more than I can. You can relate with that. And when the guy knew who you were, it, it meant something that you uh, were on his radar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Just made you feel like, uh, made you feel like gold. <laughs> kind of like uh, your canine uh, family yeah, member exactly. is. On. <laughs> yeah. My dog is, guarding, my dog is guarding my uh, rough and tumble neighborhood. Here. Uh, leave it to a, a beautiful, loving canine to kind of uh, bring us back to the reality of the sublime here. As we uh, remember Jerry Remy, who passed away at the age of 68 uh, on Sunday after a uh, long bout with lung cancer. He will be remembered by, and uh, has already been remembered by many Red Sox fans on social media. Certainly you're all aware of the posts on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, they were nonstop and, and very much understandably so uh, from Sunday when the news broke uh, really right on through as we taped this in. Uh, Jerry Remy is a Red Sox legend and he will never be forgotten speaking with ian brown of redsox.com you can follow him on twitter at ian m brown all one word bet online is back and better than ever a new web interface for the start of the basketball season and more props odds and lines than ever before bet online remain remains your number one spot for all of the basketball and football action this season 
Head to their new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use their promo code CLNS50 to receive your bonus. That's CLNS50 and receive your bonus. From basketball, football, baseball, postseason, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Do not wait to take advantage of all of the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. All right, speaking with Ian Brown, doing an amazing job covering your Boston Red Sox for MLB.com and, of course, RedSox.com. Let's move on to the on-field news, or should I say the off-season on-field news, and we have to start with J.D. Martinez. I am going on the working assumption, Ian Brown, that J.D. Martinez opts out. I just think that makes the most sense. He's had a great uh, he had a great bounce back season in 2021 and in the playoffs, he was, I'd say one of two or three of the best Red Sox batters that they had your, your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, JD, it's interesting that this contract that Scott Boris uh, constructed for him here, uh, you know, usually you have a contract that has a, has an opt out. This guy had an opt out after year. It was a five-year deal. He had an opt out after year two after year three and after year four. So after year two, um, he opted back in and I figure, you know, he was kind of scarred from his first free agency when the Red Sox signed him, or if you remember, he was out of work, like almost the entire, yes. entire winter. The Red Sox didn't sign him until spring training actually already started. So I just think that he didn't want to go back into that. Uh, he had a pretty nice deal. So he, he kept it after, after the second year. And then uh, after the third year, um, he had such a terrible year in 2020 with the, and I don't put any stock in that because it was a 60 game season and that's two months of a season. How do you, how yes. do you guys up a two month season? But anyway, I wouldn't. He, he couldn't opt out after hitting, uh, you know, he hit 207, I think in 2020. And so he couldn't opt out after that, but after this one, he had a great start to the season and then he had a pretty, ended up with a pretty good season. Uh, like you said, played pretty well in the playoffs, had some big hits for them, some big home runs. And, uh, you know, the, let's face it, everyone thinks the National League is going to the DA. okay? So now he's got one year left in this contract with the Red Sox, going to pay him $20 bucks. He's got the, the DH in the National League, which is going to open up 15 jobs, okay? 15 jobs, basically. And he's saying, I'm, I'm going to make some money here. And I think that's what Scott Bohr and, and J.D.'s really one of those guys who let Boris do the thinking for him. I mean, there are certain... Boris clients where I know Jason Baratek um, really drove the bus himself on those contracts he did with Boris. Um, Xander Bogarts in this last one really drove the bus. <laughs> Bo, uh, Boris did not want him to sign that extension he did with the Red Sox. It was a team-friendly extension. But J.D.'s one of those guys who listens to Boris, and he says, Scott Boris is smarter than I am. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. And I'm sure Scott Boris is telling him, look, dude, you're going to make uh, – you got one at 20. Um, you, you could probably make three at 60 right now. Um, so why not take the security if you can get that right now, um, rather than risk that, you know, you come back in 20, in 2022, maybe you don't have as good a year, right? JD's going to be 35, I think next season. So I think that in this case, you, you quit while you're ahead, you take, this is going to be probably your last time, maybe your last time you're going to be a free agent if you're JD. So I think he's going to take the free agency and this is creates an interesting spot for the Red Sox because, um, Kyle Schwarber, another guy who came over here, um, he's going to be a free agent too. He's got this, uh, 
He's got this mutual player team option. Those never get exercised. It's $11.5 million. This guy has just had the best year of his career. But he's going to go out and be a free agent. So I think that if JD leaves, well, A, you could you could negotiate with both of them and see which one you could strike a deal with. Um, but I think that almost they might want they might rather bring Schwarber back to JD. They might think that he's a little bit better for, fit for their team. Younger. Right? Yeah, uh, a little younger. And um, just that whole his just hitting style is relentless. It's just like every pitch, he fights every pitch, this guy. And I had no idea what a good uh, bat he gave until I started watching him every day. Just this is personality track. You know the guys who fit in Boston, right? The I do. <laughs> like, like that um, that dirt dog mentality, you know. And JD's a good guy. He's fine, um, but he's more of a laid back guy, right? And uh, Schwarber is just man. He just he loved being in Boston. He loved those two months. He felt like a fit uh, from the moment he got there. Teammates loved him. It was a great rapport there. And he just fits better on this roster without JD because he's best suited as a DH. And you saw Schwarber hurt them in the playoffs a couple of times with his glove at first base. He's just not a, not a good first baseman. Um, and in left field, you put him in left field, you don't want to do that because you'd rather play Alex Verdugo in left. So you can keep Kike in center, who Kike Hernandez is a better defender in center than any of us thought he was going to be. So I think that Schwarber makes a lot of sense for this team. Um, so I think that that's what they try to do. I think if JD goes, they try to keep, they try to resign Schwarber to a three or four year deal. Who's your first baseman, Dahlbeck? I in think that you've scenario, you've got Dahlbeck tries with the, and also I'm wondering, the Red Sox infield defense was just a killer for them last year. And um, Dahlbeck's a better third baseman than he is in the, as a first baseman. You might know where I'm going here, but Devers, yeah, I think I do. We keep waiting for him to become better at, third base and it's just not happening <laughs> right not happening he's just not consistent over there so maybe you can make him a first baseman maybe his defense won't cost you devers at first base yeah so maybe they they do that and they they flip those two guys and then also you have um the other interesting thing is you have another corner guy tristan Cassis, right best upper level hitter in the minors uh he plays first and third um, he could be ready. He's a left-handed hitter, and you, you'll like this track. His idol is Joey Votto. That's the guy he's modeled. Yes, his entire, I was uh, aware of that. Yeah, that's the guy he's modeled his entire hitting approach after. So, you know, maybe you have him at midseason. Um, so those are some factors you have here. But, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, you in an ideal world, uh, Schwarber is your DH, and then uh, Dahlbeck endeavors in some combination at first and third. And then maybe you're going to add a second baseman uh, with some pop. So we'll have to see how – how the offseason goes. So, um, Alex Rod, Alex Rod, Eduardo Rodriguez, Erod, uh, is he back? And if he's not, does that mean the Red Sox finally uh, do the deep dive and and transition? Not one of the two relievers in the bullpen this postseason, but two of the relievers to the starting rotation. Because I think a lot of it has to do with what happens with Erod. Yeah, you make a good point. Look, they're going to give Eduardo Rodriguez the qualifying offer. Um, which is going to be $18.4 million. And he's going to have to decide. He didn't have his best year. He had a 4.75 ERA. Uh, but a couple of things are at work. He didn't pitch all of last year because he had the, the, the heart thing due to the COVID, the myocarditis. And, um, you know, he, he was one of those guys where the defense kind of let him down a little bit. So they say that some of his under-the-hood numbers are better than his actual, you know, some of the stat geeks will say that those numbers were, were pretty good. Um, so he's going to have to listen to his agent and say, Oh, can I do better than this 18.4? Can we get a multi-year deal? 
um, worth 40, $50 million on the open market, or, we, or do we take this? So he's going to have to make a pretty big, dis, uh, quick decision because it's going to be, um, they'll make the qualifying offer on Sunday. And then I think he has a week to decide whether to take it or not. Um, so that's going to be interesting, Trags. That's really, to me, that one could go either way. Oh, I so, mean, this, really, Ian, with, with Erod, that's going to determine whether or not Garrett Whitlock and Tanner, I think of those two, Whitlock and Hauk, I think that Hauk is more likely to wind up in the rotation. And I think yeah. Whitlock could remain in the bullpen toward, on the back end of the bullpen. Yeah, because Hauk looked like in the minors, he was trending to be a pretty good starter. Right. Majors. And uh, he, he showed flashes of brilliance at times this year. I mean, uh, one of the best pitching performances I saw all year for the Red Sox this year was in game 161, um, a Saturday afternoon in Washington, D.C. The Red Sox fighting for their playoff lives. Hauk hadn't started, started a game in a couple of weeks, um, but they needed to put him back in the rotation. He threw five perfect innings, 15 up, 15 down, yep. and or, uh, took him out at that point, um, trying to win the game, all the, all the stuff we hate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but, but uh, they, they took him out. But uh, So he's impressive. Whitlock, um, he was a decent Yankees prospect, um, but he was never like a great Yankees prospect as a starting pitcher, so you don't really know what you have there as a starter. Um, you do know you have a pretty special relief pitcher. I mean, this guy was right. the best relief pitcher all year this past year. And I think that if he just learns a couple things, like not to throw a first pitch fastball to Jose Altuve with the ALCS on the line, when all Altuve does is hunt first pitch fastballs, you know, I think maybe he could take his game. Part of that, though, that's on Plawecki. I, I believe it was, was Vasquez. Vasquez. That's yeah, on Vasquez. Vasquez. I, I like Vasquez with some of his pitch calling sometimes. And Trax, you're a catcher, but um, yep. I mean, that's why sometimes. when you say that he's got to know. Well, yeah. the catcher's got to know. And if yeah, they're and arguing, I mean, catcher goes out and says, "You know who's at the plate, right?" Yeah, and the catcher with well, a rookie, the catcher's got to be a little more assertive than he's going right. to be with Nate Baldy or Chris Sale, who should know exactly what he wants to throw in that spot. But um, anyway, I think Whitlock. I, I agree. I think that, you know, I tend to think that he can be an elite reliever. I'm not sure if he can be um, that big of a difference maker as a starter. I think maybe he ends up as a fourth or fifth starter, or I think how could maybe be a third or fourth um, starter, honestly. So I think that's pretty good. And Hawks just got a bigger frame too. He looks like a starter, man. Yeah. You know, two, Nick two, Pavetta. He's, he, he fits yeah. in their plans, right? Yeah. Pavetta. Exactly. Pavetta really, um, he really showed me something this year. Um, his, his good starts were really, really good. What Pavetta needs to do now, um, his, the next step in his development is to be able to go through the order that third time through and prove that he's not just a five-inning pitcher. Because um, one of the keys to that ALCS was when Cora took him out. He, he was pitching a brilliant game. He had five innings, two hits. I think it was one run in that game against Houston. He took him out because his third time through the order stats were terrible. Um, so he's got to uh, show that he can do that third time through the order he could take his game to another level yeah he, he really impressed me with his competitiveness this year well uh i'm gonna wrap it up in uh with a quote that uh, you have in your he said it uh column from alex cora and i think it wraps up the season very nicely for what i think by all estimations uh all analysis this year was an overachieving 2021 red sox team alex cora quote i told them how proud i am it's an amazing group it's a group that we will always remember. Alex Cora on your 2021 Red Sox. You want to add anything to that? Yeah, I thought it was a great quote. Because look, this team, 
Um, Trags, the team this reminded me the most of really in my time covering the team was 2003 because the team just had so many ups and downs and so many ups and downs. And like, you would, you know, I think a fan would hate this team one day and then love them the next day. And it was just like the roller coaster, but they always seemed to find a way to get back up. And as they said back, they didn't have like the cowboy up <laughs> slogan this year, but the right. way to, to sort of get up off the mat. And I think that Boston relates to a team like that. And they fell in love with this team because um, they got hot just when everybody started to give up on them at the end of the regular season, then the beginning of the playoffs, that run and beating the Yankees in the wild card game and beating the Rays, a uh, hundred win team and the Rays in the division series, the way they did. I think that uh, people are going to remember those games. And I just, that was such a great atmosphere of the games at Fenway. I don't remember an atmosphere like that at Fenway in a long time as I do those, that Yankees wild card game, the two games against Tampa Bay and the game three against Houston, when they, uh, they blew their doors off and Schwarber hit that grand slam, just the, the ballpark was just um, Boston was just in love with this team again. And that was, uh, that was cool to see. Um, I think that now they just need to add a little more uh, talent. They got a lot of what they did um, this year was because they were such a gritty team and because they were so mentally tough. Now they got to patch up some holes on the ball club um, in particular uh, bullpen is the biggest thing this team needs to address. They need to have an elite bullpen to go deep in October these days. You saw what the Braves did tracks with those three sure. guys that they were trotting out every day to me like the team that wins every year they have a bullpen like that where they have like three or four guys are spinning out there and they're just dominating the red sox didn't have that they had whitlock you know that was what they had sometimes brazier would be good sometimes hansel robe hansel robles would do it with smoke and mirrors uh you know and um matt barnes earlier in the year he was great you got to find a way to get him back but yeah you just need a bullpen that that can have those three to four guys, and that's when you're ready uh, to make a deep October run. That is Ian Brown. He does an amazing job, as you probably already could deduce by listening to him speak on this podcast. He does an amazing job covering the Red Sox, has since 2002, if I'm getting that correct. Correct? That's correct, yeah. I was just completed my uh, 20th year covering Two the team. That's amazing. 20 years of covering the Boston Red Sox for MLB.com and, of course, RedSox.com. Follow him on Twitter at Ian M. Brown with an E at the end, all one word. I want to thank everybody for downloading today's podcast. Thank our terrific guest, Ian Brown of MLB.com and RedSox.com. Also want to thank our great sponsor, BetOnline.ag. For Ian Brown, I'm Mike Petralia, and this has been the Red Sox Beat Podcast powered by CLNS Media.